We are going to continue our series that I have entitled Foundations. We are, I'm actually what I'm doing, if you're well aware of this, if you're from church here, uh, I'm teaching through our statement of theology that we have as, as a church, as a conference of churches really, and uh, just uh, taking an opportunity to sort of dig down and make sure we're laying the right foundation for uh, what we do in life. You know, we, we can't very well talk about how we, how we uh, interact with things or how we respond to things or what the right response is unless we have taken time to say, this is what I believe about who God is and who I, who I am and what God wants and all these things. And we've been laying that foundation. And by the way, I couldn't, um, I, I don't plan these things. Uh, I try to sometimes, and when I try to, it doesn't always work out, but I don't plan these things. But I, I couldn't think of better timing for closing a week of Thanksgiving than going from last week's message on man, what we believe about man, and to this week's message about what we believe about salvation. For as you remember last week, if you were here last week, um, it's not the most fun thing in the world to end a sermon talking about the sinfulness of man and the results of our sin. And forcing, hopefully if you're willing to do so, forcing us to look square in the face the reality that I desperately need help. If something doesn't happen, I'm, it's, all, it's a lost cause. Because when God created us, when God created me, he created me good and right and perfect, but he gave me a choice. And from Adam on down to every single person after that, we've made the same choice, right? And that choice has been what? To make sure that you were staring it full in the face, you tell me, that choice was what? What did we choose? What did every one of us choose? We chose sin. We chose to disobey God. We chose to do something our own way. And take your pick. There's lots of some things we could say that they were. For some of us, there's lots of them. Some of us are only one. The bottom line is, last week, as it were, I shared the bad news, right? For it meant that where we began, created for good, created perfect, created in perfect harmony with God, in relationship with God, we took, and now we ended up down here, where the wages of our sin is death. The result of that is an eternal separation from God. And we stop there. And it's not fun to stop there. Because it leaves us feeling, well, maybe it's been good to stop there. Because it leaves us feeling like something better happened to change the situation. And thankfully, we have today. Today, we get to talk about what we believe about salvation. Now, I'm going to read it right out of, the, out of here just like I always do. Again, if you have these books, uh, hopefully you have them with them or reading through it a bit. Uh, if you don't have them, I think we still have some copies left in that little literature rack there right outside the, the fellowship hall there. Salvation, this is what we say we believe. Salvation is a free gift of God's grace based on the work of Jesus Christ and in parentheses, the shedding of his blood on the cross, his resurrection, and the present, intercess and present intercessory ministry. And then also on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is, I have those two phrases up there. I took out the parenthetical statement. We go on to say, those who receive God's gift of salvation by faith become children of God, justified in their relationship to God, sanctified in their walk and work, and secure in an ongoing faith expressed and fostered by obedience to Christ. Lots of things added there together. One more sentence. Justification is extended to all people in regard to Adamic guilt, a phrase we talked about last week a bit, and by personal repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his provision in regard to personal guilt. We'll kind of pick a few of those pieces up. Once again, we're left with the task of we have some fancy-sounding words. We have some really flowery kind of statement. But the reality is, what do you and I really believe when we break it down about salvation? 
So let's jump in. The first thing I want to do before we, uh, before we sort of begin with some scriptures here is I want to remind us of a couple things. Because what you read up here, if you're reading carefully, says two things, right? Salvation is a free gift of God's grace based on two things. One is, you say it. What's the first thing? Based on what? The work of Jesus Christ. And the second thing is what? So those are two things we've already covered. Back early in our foundation series, we talked about God the Father, then we talked about Jesus the Son. And in the discussion of Jesus the Son, I'm just giving you part of it. It's not the whole thing, but as a reminder, uh, on the discussion of Jesus the Son, as God incarnate, Jesus, among some other things, he gave himself in death, he redeemed from sin, he was raised from dead, and he ascended into heaven. This is a review because I want you to see how the work of Jesus is going to lead us to salvation. We can only talk today about salvation like we're going to, knowing what we've already said about Jesus. As God incarnate, these are some things Jesus did. He gave himself in death. He, was re- he redeemed us from sin. He was raised from the dead, and he sent it into heaven. Likewise, when the next week we cover the Holy Spirit, listen to what we said about the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit ministry was this. He convicts sinners. He regenerates penitence. The Holy Spirit is actually the person who changes us when we place our faith in Jesus. It's his role. He regenerates people who are sorry or have recognized their need and have said, I need Jesus. And then he continues, he encourages believers and he empowers believers. All those things, again, are history. If you don't remember them, you can go back. All these, these sermons are on our website. If you haven't heard them, you can go back and look it up if you want. But this is what precipitates our discussion on salvation today. The work of Jesus and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So then what do we mean when we say salvation? That's the word that we're dealing with today. Let me just sort of, as an encompassing text to kind of get us started, and actually we're going to kind of weave our way through this text because uh, I could make every point I'm going to make this morning based on just this text alone, but just a couple of verses from Galatians chapter 4, a succinct description of salvation that we need to operate from. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, so Paul is talking about how we used to be enslaved to elementary principles. We used to be children of wrath. We used to be opposed to God. That's what last week's sermon was about. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's a whole, there's a whole, I mean, you're going to get a whole message, but there's even more than a whole message in just these four verses that when the fullness of time came, God did what nothing else had done so far up to that point. God changed things. God rescued us, for that's what we need. That's what the word salvation means, right? Is to be saved. If you need to be saved, it means you have to be saved from something. That something is death, is separation from God. We talked about that last week. That was why we ended last week what we did. Because that leads us to recognize that we need saved. You need saved. I need saved. Every one of us needs saved. The great news is, according to these verses, it's happened. For when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. Here's where we're going to break this down. We're going to just look at this in three different things I want to say. The first thing we need to understand, or the first thing we say we believe about salvation, is that it is an act of God. And I want to make that very clear. And I think you know that, and I think we say that all the time, and yet I think we lose sight of it all the time, practically speaking. 
like in the working out of our lives, we lose sight of this fact. Salvation is an act of God. And when I say that, I mean it has nothing to do with us. Like, we're not responsible for it. We didn't do it. We can't do anything about it. If we didn't, it's, not, it's not because of us. It's not because we've done or we could ever do. Right? Salvation is an act of God. Let me just share some verses because we want to we make sure that we're giving our belief, what we believe about God and what we say about these things from the Bible. We said this verse last week, so I'm just going to say it again. We focused on the first part last week. This week we get to focus on the second part. For the wages of sin is death. We talked about that last week. But there's the last part of that. And I think I read it last week, but we didn't really focus on it. The free gift, whose free gift? It's God's. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice how that stands. One verse stands in direct opposition to what we learned and spent a lot of time with in Genesis last week. God said to Adam, you can eat of all the trees in the garden except for this one. The day you eat of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what will happen? You will die. We traced that through last week, how that's true, has been true through Scripture. Look how this verse offsets that. The wage of sin is death. The wage of disobeying God, the wage of doing your own thing is death. But God has a free gift, and it's eternal life. That's the opposite of death. It's eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Colossians 1, verse 19 and 20. I love the book of Colossians. I, I maybe should preach through it here sometime. I think I've done it in a revival meeting setting somewhere else, but I have not done it here, I don't think. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, I love it's just it's so rich. It's, it gets right to the point. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 is one of my most favorite sections. But at the end of that, in verse 19, he says this. He's talking about Jesus and the majesty of Jesus. If you ever want to elevate Jesus up and help get, have help doing that, just read Colossians verse one, or chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. It elevates Jesus. He's everything. But in these verses, he says, For in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We've covered that already. And through him, to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is an act of God. God put all of himself inside of Jesus, in Jesus, and then through Jesus, he reconciled to himself. He made peace. That's the opposite. That's what we really need, right? When there's separation, when there's a distance, we need peace. Think about that. It plays out. We, we know about that word peace in all kinds of other settings in, in our relations with other people and maybe even with other countries. But that's really what it is, right? When there's something at odds, peace has to be established. We need peace with God. And this verse tells us that God did, in fact, exactly that. Let me just keep reading. I should flip over there because there's a couple more verses I want to read there. If you read the next verses that come after that in verse 21, it says, And you, us, me, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, that's last week, doing the evil deeds, he has now, God has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, the exact opposite of what you are when you're in sin. In other words, exactly how God created you, right? When God created you, you were what? When God created man, good. But through sin, we fell and we're no longer right. And this verse tells us that God reconciled us through Jesus, his body of flesh, by his death, in order to present us, again, holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, if you continue to hang on to the hope of the gospel, which I'm offering you to this morning, that's the, I'm, I'm this is the message about the gospel. If you continue to hang on to that, that's where you, that's, that, then, then these, these things, these verses apply to you. By the way, a little aside that we're going to have to cover here. 
we believe, and it's, it's, it's hinted at, at what we said here in our, in our big flowery language, but we believe that salvation is conditional. Notice what I just read. Paul says all this great, wonderful truth. Jesus is amazing. He is everything. And in fact, in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And God brought this, you're right, Merlin, the most miraculous thing you could ever, ever, ever think of through Jesus by making us right with him. If we trust him, by making us right with him. And he goes on and says, and now you can be holy and blameless and above reproach for him, from him, uh, before him again. And he says what? If indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith, holding fast, being steadfast in the hope of the gospel that you hang on to. We believe our faith is conditional. By the way, one of the verses we often look at to talk about the gospel, talk about salvation, John 3.36, says, it says, whoever believes in the Son of, uh, sorry, let me just read that right. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Again, this is kind of reaching back into last week and talking about this week. But you know, and, uh, maybe perhaps a better translation of those words would be whoever is believing in the Son is having eternal life. It, those are both present kind of words, like in, in the process of, if you are believing in Jesus, you have eternal life. What happens when you stop believing in Jesus? Well, read the rest of the verse. It tells you what happens, right? I can tell you if you're not obeying him, you're probably not believing him either. Not fully. You might be saying you are up here, but you're not really. When in a Sunday school lesson, we talk about the fact that there's three men who are willing to stand for their faith in God to be put in the fire, and we talk about the fact that that wasn't the first time they made that decision to stand true for God, was it? When they stood before the furnace. They made that decision many, many, many times leading up to that day. Those decisions don't get made unless you don't truly believe. Whoever is believing in the Son is having eternal life. It, we believe it's conditional. Let me keep on going. We're going to pull out a few other things about this, but, but that's, as we wrap these things in, this is what we believe about salvation. Peter writes these wonderful words as he opens his first letter. I can't quote them all by, by heart. I could read them, I guess. But uh, the, point of, uh, the point isn't the, the words. Right. But he writes these, these wonderful words about how God is this amazing God and his mercy, his incredible mercy. He is, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. He's, and he's given us this, this wonderful inheritance. It's up in heaven. It doesn't spoil. It doesn't fade. It doesn't die. All these things. And then he says this. At the end of that, it's all one big long sentence, by the way. At the end of that, he says, those of us, that applies to those of us who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, I, re I use this verse for two reasons. The first is, I'm making the point that salvation is an act of God. And we who are in a very individualistic culture, a very I-can-get-things-done kind of group of people, a very uh, independent people most times, I want to just continue to reinforce the point. If he says these words, look what he says. When you make your profession, we'd like to say, well, I've made my profession of faith in Jesus. I'm the one that's responsible for me getting to heaven. But look what he says. He says, God in his mercy has made this incredible offer to you and this incredible inheritance to you. And if you choose to accept it, even getting there happens how? Who by God's power are being guarded.
If the act of salvation, you being saved, is dependent only on God and not you, which I would tell you is true, and I don't think you are going to argue with me, I think we must continue to understand that remaining in salvation is also itself an act of God's mercy in your life. I'm not saying you have no responsibility. We're going to get to a little bit how we receive this, this salvation. I'm not saying you don't have any responsibility. Paul himself also would say that he is working with all of his strength to work out that which God has worked in him, right? That which God is doing in him. It's God's work. The other reason, by the way, that I bring this verse out is because it's a good time to introduce a principle that we're going to talk about, not just this morning, but several times over the next coming weeks. It has a lot to do with our theology, and it is the, I, I don't, there's probably some big fancy word for this, or some theological word for this. I don't know that. I'm not that smart, but I just, I, I call it the now, not yet principle. Salvation is now, but not yet. What do I mean by that? Look at what he says there. I mean, I mean, you answer that. When Jesus died, are, are we saved now? Please say yes. That would be true. It's not a trick question. Have you seen the full effects of salvation in your life? No. Because there's still sin, right? There's still stuff we struggle with. There's still stuff inside of us. There's, there's this ongoing inside, outside. There's still Satan. There's all kinds of things. Look at what he says. He says, God is guarding you by power through his power that for the this, this salvation we get by faith that's ready to be revealed at the last time. Well, wait a minute. I thought the angel said, now the kingdom of God has come when Jesus was born, right? It introduces something we see if we look, if we look, we don't have to look very hard actually. We see in scripture over and over and over and over and over again. Now, not yet. You see a fulfillment, but there's more later. You see a foreshadow, but it's really pointing to something else. You see a type, you see the, the fulfillment coming down the road. It, I, we don't have time this morning, but I could take you through all of scripture and see how this happened over and over and over and over again with what God said. When God gives prophecies, many of them, I, I would almost say most of them, have that kind of now, not yet stuff going on. Our salvation is no different. We have salvation now, but we have not yet seen the fullness of it. We're still waiting for that. So two little asides we did just in that uh, is that our salvation, we believe our salvation is conditional and we believe it is now but not yet, now not yet. All of this, all of these verses, everything we've just talked about leads us to where we can say, and I'm sure you thought, I'm gonna say this verse sometime, where we can say with confidence the words that Paul penned in his letter to the Ephesians about salvation. It is by grace, we all know these verses, right? It is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is God's work. It's not a result of the works so that no one may boast. I kind of added my own little phrase in it, but you can read the screen behind me. You already know the verses probably. Salvation is an act of God. Can I, take, can I make two statements about that? Two statements related to how I think we often respond to things, either by this side on this extremity or this side on this extremity. Don't take salvation away from God and make it something you have to do. Okay? Don't think that salvation is dependent on you, like the work for it. Don't take it away from God. Both getting saved and remaining saved, let God do what he said he did. 
At the same time, can I just say this as boldly as possible, as bluntly as possible, as hopefully as makes as much sense as possible, let God do what he wants to in you with his salvation. Don't reject it. Allow God by his grace to give the gift to you. Take the gift that God is giving to you. And it's an important place for us to talk about this wonderful thing we're talking about, this good news, the gospel, all this stuff. It would be a horrible tragedy to lift high the true statements of salvation and not ever tell you how you receive it. How do you bring in this gift that God is offering? If it's an act of God and God is offering it to anybody and everybody, how do you receive it? I'd like your help. We've been doing this with this, this series uh, uh, pretty often. You have in your handout there some, some uh, references. It's right there in the middle there. How do I receive the gift of salvation? I'd like to have you guys read these verses. I think there's something good that happens when we read scripture together. So some of these are very familiar. Um, probably all of these are pretty familiar. Romans 10, 9, and 10. We're going to start there. How do we receive this gift of salvation? If this is such an incredible act of God that does the, the thing that we most need to have happen to us, and I just told you, you cannot take it out of God's hand and make it yours, but you also need to let, please let God do what he, wants, what he has already done through Jesus. Receive the gift. How do I do that? If you're sitting here this morning and you just want to hear it again, how do I receive the gift of salvation? Someone read Romans 10, 9 or 10, or if you haven't memorized, you just want to say it, that's fine. Read it. Say it nice and clearly so we can all hear it. Two things are mentioning very clearly in those two verses. Your heart and your mouth. If you believe in your heart, those things I talked about with, about Jesus, that he came, he died, he redeemed us, he was resurrected again, went back to heaven. If you believe in your heart, and the other part is with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth. You know how, you think, have you noticed we've been bumping up into this thing, like all the way through, we're talking about who God is, and what he says is really important, right? Like what God says, what, the words that come out of his mouth. It's so, it's, that's one of the things I think that it means when we are created in God's image is that what comes out of our mouth is also really important. It's very binding. It's very powerful. Did you notice like, like we're the only part of his, creature that's, his creation that speaks, right? Like the animals don't, don't talk like we talk. They don't, why, did you ever think about why that is? I suggest you it's a part of being created in God's image, what that means, that we can talk. And those words we say have power. So the first thing we have to talk about as we talk about receiving the gift of salvation is there has to be a confession with the mouth. Jesus is what? What does it say? Jesus is Lord. He's the boss. He's in charge. He's the king. That is a statement of allegiance. Did you notice that? A statement of allegiance. Jesus is and now, I, I think you can understand this, but you're not just saying he's a boss, but you're saying he's my boss. He's my boss. He is my king. Interesting that to receive salvation is more important. The, the, the emphasis is put on, on acknowledging with your mouth that he's your Lord, not your Savior. By the way, the Savior part is on the other side, the believing. That's the believing part. If you believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, that, that he went to the cross for your sake, he went into the ground, he died for your sake, and he came back out of the ground. That's the salvation part. If you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth. All right, let's read some more verses. James chapter 1, verse 21. What does James say about receiving salvation? This one's very interesting. Again, think of all the things we talked about, about God speaking and God's word and the importance of all that. What does James 1:21 say? Uh, 
Yeah, all kinds of flowery words in that one too, but, but, but listen to what he's saying. He's saying get rid of all the, the, the wickedness that's in you, and you do that by receiving what? The implanted word. Interesting. The implanted word, and that word can do what? It'll save you. That's what we're talking about, salvation. It'll save you. Now, remember when we did the, lesson, uh, the, the, the sermon on the, on the Bible? We, I, I told you that we believe, according to our statement of theology, we believe that the Bible encapsulates or represents all the spoken word of God and the incarnate word of God. If you receive that, you let that word be planted in you. Again, there's this idea of your heart, where your heart, you receive that. In you, that has the ability to save you. Because you're receiving the words of God and the implication is that you're believing them. By the way, let's talk about that believing thing because if you go one more chapter over in James, James chapter 2, verse 23, he's talking about a man uh, who's credited with righteousness and this is what he says about him. Somebody read uh, James 2, 23. Ah, that sounds a lot like salvation, right? Like he was saved. Why was he saved? Why was he saved? Why was Abraham saved? He believed in God. God said things and he believed it. That sounds a lot like what James just got done saying in chapter one. If you want to get rid of wickedness in you, receive the implanted word and believe it and it can save you. One more, let's do Acts 2.38. At the end of Peter's incredible sermon and they're pierced to the heart and they say, what are we supposed to do about this? Acts chapter two, verse 38. Someone read that out loud for us. Yeah, Peter, they said, what are we going to do? How should, they asked the question that we just said we're explaining. How do I receive this gift? How do I receive salvation that God has offered? Because Peter just got to telling them that God, God, when you killed Jesus, you thought you were, I mean, I don't know what you thought you were doing, but God was actually bringing salvation to all mankind, and they believed it. And they said, what do we do? And he said, repent. Again, that's the turning away. That's the changing of your mind. I, I've covered that lots of times in your Bible. Just say it again. It's the changing of your mind and turning away from those things that are wicked. He says, repent get baptized, there's the first time we see the outward sign of what's happening inside of here, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is salvation. That is how you receive it. So take those four verses, if you want, make a composite picture, and you recognize that it involves you beginning to believe and understand that what God says in this Bible about what he has done on your behalf through Jesus Christ, you begin to believe that and say, that must be true. And as you begin to believe it, you receive it and say, I want that for me. What you said Jesus did for everybody, I want it for me. And as you do that, you recognize that I need to change inside of here. And I want to turn away from what's going on over there. I, what I used to be, I want to be renewed. I'm going to tell everyone else that by getting baptized. That's what that is. I'm signifying that I went under with Jesus and I came back up in newness of life just like Jesus did. And I want to receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, he says, you will then receive it. Receiving the Holy Spirit is not a, it's a sign that you, I mean, it, 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 it's, a, it's a result of becoming a believer, if I can put it that, put it that way. When you place your faith, you confess that, it's a result of becoming a believer. Let's keep moving. Salvation. As we talk about this, have, if we have received it, I want to make sure we note two things about salvation. It is a change of position. 
And I don't mean that in a physical sense where as if I'm here right now and now I'm over here. It's a change of position. But I do mean it in that sense. It is a change of position. When you are in your sin, you are separated from God. You are not right before God. You are guilty. You deserve death. Salvation means there's a change of position in the spiritual realm. You are no longer guilty. In fact, Hebrews 10, 14 says this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That denotes a change of position. He has perfected you. He has put you, I've, I've been doing it this way visually because I'm a visual guy, but like you began here and because of your sin, you were down here and now you're back here. It's a change of position. You should no longer see yourself as as separated or as guilty before God. By the way, the, the theological word for this is justification. Justification is the theological word for what I'm trying to tell you. A change of position. You are no longer unrighteous. You are now righteous. I'll just give you the definition for that. I think you have a spot for that in your handout so that way I can fill that out. Justification means that you are made innocent. You are made right with God. If you want to look a little... A little trick to help you remember that, which I don't care if you know this or not, or if you know these words necessarily. I want you to know the concepts, but the words. But if you think of justification meaning it's just as if I'd never sinned, that's exactly what justification means. When you receive justification, it's just as if you'd never sinned. It really means, that's what I mean by a change of position. Do you know what Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3? He says some other things in the first verses there, but he says this. He says, you have died, if you've received salvation, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's about the closest thing I can find to an actual graphical description of a literal change in position. Where is Jesus right now? He's at the right hand of God in heaven, right? So if he says your life is hidden with Christ, where does that mean your life is? Where is is the the, the real life inside? Where is it? I'm going to be very literal here. It's with him in God, in heaven. I said that a little wrong. It's with him Hidden with him in God. These, these things have consequences, right? The things we say we believe have consequences. Do you actually believe that? Or do you still see yourself as this rotten sinner that is like just a big old mess up? I, I want to be careful here. I, I'm not saying you should be perfect. I want us to understand the concept of justification. The Bible says that when Jesus died on the cross, one time for us, that he has perfected. He has provided justification. He has changed positionally where we can be if we receive that salvation. We are right before him. I suspect that half the time we lose the battle because we don't even see ourselves how we ought to. Think for a moment When you arrive before the throne of God, what will be the only way that God will look at you and declare you innocent? What's the only option you have for being declared innocent before God? The blood of Jesus. If you are in Christ, right? That's what the phrase means. If you are in Christ. Are you in Christ right now? Then don't you stand as equally innocent before God right now as you will that day? That's justification. Can you really believe that when you receive salvation in Jesus' name, that it's just as if you had never sinned? I know you guys, I've lived life, so I know you know how this works, right? Like you're saying, but, 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 because you know the reality of your life. 
We have to talk about a second thing too because not only is there a change of position, there is a change of person, a change of person, a change of character, a change, something that happens. Again, we're just going to go right to Scripture. We were in Colossians chapter 3 where Paul has just made the statement. The first four verses, by the way, of Colossians 3 are really about position. He's saying, this is where you are. This is where you are. You should see your spirit, your true spirit is with Christ in heaven. His spirit is now in you. And your spirit is there. Your body's still here. But, his, but there should be a change of person because of these things. And the next verses after that in Colossians chapter 3 reinforce that. For he says this. And I didn't put the whole thing up there. But he says, put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you. And he goes on to list a whole bunch of things that are earthly in us. Put those things to death. And in verse 12, then he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and righteous. Put on things. And he lists some things that we should be having in us. He's talking about a change of person. Not only does your position change, but your person should change to match the reality of that positional change. Paul said it this way. You might know this verse a lot better. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, what? You know this verse. You should be a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, listen, pay attention. The new has come. If it hasn't, then you haven't received salvation yet. Now, let me read some more verses. They're going to sound a lot like what I just read in Colossians, but I wanted to read these actually because I think they, they just, they just bring, bring this out. Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read these verses to you. Verse 17 if you have your Bibles, of course, open it up and read along with me. But he says this. Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now this is a lot like we talked about last week's lesson, last week's sermon. That's who man is. He's saying, you should no longer walk like they do. Verse 20, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. A change of person is what happens. By the way, John, when he writes his letters down uh, later on, like not, not the Gospel of John, but the other, the epistles of John, he actually says that the test for us to know whether we are in Christ or not, do you know what he says in the test? We'll, we'll see if you know that. What is the test according to John, the epistles of John, what is the test to know whether we're actually in Christ or not? If we obey his commands. He connects those so tightly. He says, you can't say, and James would say the same thing, you can't say I believe and have faith but it doesn't show itself. It's impossible. They're two, side, they're two coi- sides of the same coin. You can't, you can't separate them anymore. And, and John says, I'll go as far as to say that. If your person hasn't changed, then your position hasn't changed. Which means you haven't received salvation. You might know about it, but you haven't received it yet. By the way, if I can just bring us back to this verse, look at what it says. It says that we are putting on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We use this phrase, becoming Christ-like. Here's the second theological word I want to introduce to you, and that's the word that goes along with justification, and it's the word sanctification. It's another big 
long word. And again, I don't necessarily care if you know the words specifically. I want you to know the concepts because you need to know that when Jesus died on the cross for you and you receive the gift that God offers through the blood of Jesus Christ, that it changes your position. That's justification. I also want you to know that it changes your person. That's sanctification. Now, I gave you a definition. It's becoming holy, set apart, becoming like Christ. You may notice if you're an astute observer of what things I put up on the screen, you may notice that it doesn't quite come out the same way as justification. When I did justification, I used words like made, like, like it's done. I said, you are made innocent. You were made right before God. And here I say you are becoming. I didn't say you were made holy or made like Christ, but you were becoming. This is where we understand. If you've been saying, but, but, but this whole time, we understand that while our position is changed like that, our person takes some time, doesn't it? The changing of our person takes some time. It is a process. Remember the verse that I talked a little bit ago about? I love this verse. Hebrews 10, 14. Justification is in the first half. For by a single offering, he has, Jesus has perfected. Past tense, done. Justification. But look at the second half of that line, of that verse. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Again, the astute reader will recognize that there's a verb tense change in that one verse, which violates the rules of English. He has perfected, past tense, those who are being current, present, ongoing tense, perfected. Remember the now, not yet? The now part is justification. We're waiting on the final sanctification piece. I will tell you, I believe it happens when you stand in the presence of Christ in glory. Not before and not after, but at that moment. How many of these principles have we seen just in the four verses we've started with? Think of an act of God, a change of position, and a change of person. But when the fullness of time came, Paul wrote, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might be receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The act of God, God sent his son. He changed our position and he's changing our person from being a slave from a place, in other places he says, a place of fear and timidity into a place of power and love and of a sound mind. To being a son. He gives us such a vivid, strong example. Think of the orphan. The one who has no father or mother. The one who needs an adoption. Lonely, without identity, without security, without any kind of covering, any kind of anybody caring for them, left out alone and vulnerable. He says, think of that person and such is who you were. But God sent his son Jesus, born of a woman, under the law to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons that we might be adopted by God to become his sons and his daughters. 
I, I don't have time for this, but just, just homework assignment. Go back and reread the story, or maybe just know this, the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. What does the father provide the son when he returns home? I'm going to tell you, if you've heard me teach on this, I, you've already heard this. He provides identity for him. He provides a covering for him, and he provides protection or security for him. Those are the things that an orphan, that someone who needs adoption, is lacking. And these verses say that when you are adopted, when you become part of God's family, that's what you receive. Identity. You're a son. You're a daughter. Protection. Covering. The real covering. Not the covering that Adam and Eve tried to make after they realized they'd sinned and they tried to cover themselves because they realized they were naked. Not the covering that God made for them when he killed the first animal and covered them. Not the covering of, of the bulls of bloat, the bulls of goats and bulls and lambs. Not that covering. But the real covering. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. He provided that covering for you. But as with any message that comes to this place, it must end with a question. Have you received it? Are you there? Are you a son? Are you an heir? Can you confidently say that I am going to receive all of God's riches at Christ's expense? That is what grace is, by the way. All of God's riches at Christ's expense. Am I an heir? Are you an heir? God, thank you so much for your word this morning. Thank you that you have just, just opened this wonderful truth to us, the good news of Jesus Christ, and we need it. If, if of, of any Sunday morning, of any time we have an opportunity, let, let today be the morning that we gladly and proudly say, yes, I need it and I receive it. I confess with my mouth, Jesus, you are my master, you are my Lord. I believe in my heart that you, Jesus, died for me. You came back out of that grave and you're in heaven. You're gonna come back to me someday. I wanna turn away from the things that are, that are, that are defiling, that are wicked, that turn away the the things that are sin against you, and I want to walk towards you. I want to have received the Holy Spirit who is going to guard me and keep me until the day that I'm an heir apparent, until I walk in and I hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good. Well done, my child, if I can say it that way. May today be the day that we say that, God. I want to say that. I pray there's others here, and I would just encourage you, brothers and sisters sitting here this morning, say that right now to him. Say it if you need to by standing up or by doing something, but say it. You can say it out loud. I don't care. I'm going to keep on praying, but say it to him. Say, Jesus, you're my master. I believe in you. I trust in you. I want to receive the gift that you've made for me because that is how we receive salvation. That is how our position is changed before God, that we are right before you, Father, again. Thank you that you've made it possible. That's how I have any hope for any kind of change in me, the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, encouraging, empowering me to turn me into something that I was not, and that is to be more like my Savior. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the incredible gift of salvation. <laughs> for this, God, we just had a day, we had a weekend, we had a win. For this, I am truly thankful. This makes every other thankful thing I have pale in comparison. Thank you. We declare you, we crown you King of kings and Lord of lords. We bow our hearts before you.
Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand this morning? I'll give you a benediction. I will reach back to our study of the Holy Spirit, and as we have talked about salvation this morning and the work of the Holy Spirit, I again, I just charge you, encourage you, I, I, I don't know, bless you with the gift of the Holy Spirit and His ministry, His empowering and encouraging work that He does in your life, that you may walk in the salvation that He has given to you and that you have received this morning. May you do that this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.